happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, the episode that was supposed to be yesterday on Wednesday, the 3rd of, no, 2nd, right, of uh, January. But today is Thursday, January the 3rd. My name is Wes Fryer. I am the director of technology at the Cassidy School, have been enjoying a two-week break, which is just wrapping up. And uh, yes, the fault was mine last night, so my deepest apologies. Joined, as always, by Dr. Jason Neifer, hard at work at the Montana Digital Academy. I think I even saw a little snow over his um, shoulder as the camera was adjusting its, uh, its exposure there. So good afternoon, Dr. Neifer. Good afternoon, Dr. Fryer. My name is Jason Neifer. I'm the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Geo Academy, and I'm joining today from the Phyllis J. Washington College of Education and Human Sciences at the University of Montana. I think this is the first time we've done um, the podcast with me joining in from work. So the good news is, is that we have 800 megabits down, 800 megabits up. So I would be surprised, although um, it's been known to happen once in a while, that the bandwidth uh, can be a little limiting here. But I'd be surprised if we ran into bandwidth issues. As uh, we have, well, it's it's uh, uh, winter break at the University of Montana, no students on campus, and we have, you know, a pipe that can handle several thousand college kids is currently going unused. So I'm presuming that I'm good to go today on bandwidth. So, Wes, how was your New Year's? It was good. It was good. We, uh, you know, we have all the uh, the kids together and we don't have, you know, any actual even girlfriends, much less spouses and, you know, other things. It's just, you know, with two adult children now over the age of 18, life is different. So did a little evening bowling, which has been a, a bit of a tradition. And uh, I didn't think we would make it to ring in the new year, but but we did. So and we had enough enough wood and some cold weather, which I know is not a big deal for you. But actually, it's it's been odd. We just haven't had that much winter. So today, a little sleet, a little light snow. Local schools that have gone back are closed. So yay, snow day, although we were still on holiday. So how about yourself? Did you guys uh, ring in the new year in grand form? Um, I, we actually made it to New Year's or, or to midnight for the first time in, in several years. But, yes, it was a quiet night at our house, mostly um, cooking and uh, eating together and then calling it a year. So I think I uh, saw the, some pizza dough. Is there some new recipes going on there? Well, we're working on I've moved away from I figure after about 15 years of, of trying to perfect pizza dough, I feel like I've gotten there finally. And so now I'm moving on to just generic bread. And so mm. I did try on New Year's Day a nice loaf of uh, white bread, which came out just delightful from the oven. And so we're uh, my I come from a, a baking family. My grandfather, well, my grandmother taught my grandfather. Uh, they're both gone now. But my grandmother taught my grandfather how to bake when she um, had knee surgery. This was 15 years ago. And my grandfather didn't cook anything until that point. And then um, after he explored a little bit in the kitchen, he became quite a baker. And so um, up until um, he passed away just a couple years ago, he was baking dozens and dozens and dozens of, of loaves every week and then would go around the community and give bread to neighbors and like like pretty pretty good stuff. So I'm trying to kind of embrace my um, family uh, tradition of baking and see if I can expand my baking repertoire just a little bit. Awesome. Well, that sounds great. We are, however, not going to indulge you in uh, more more stories of baked goods and holiday goodies. We typically are recounting the past week's technology news and looking at that through an educational lens. We encourage you to check out the show notes, which you'll find um, on the podcast link, which you hope you may have found this link uh, that you're watching or listening to, which is edtechsr.com. But you can also uh, always check out the list of Google Doc links that we have on edtechsr.com slash links. So, Dr. Neifer, where shall we begin today in our foray into the latest tech news? Sure. Well, there was a really interesting set of articles in The Verge, which is pretty much where I get about 60% of my daily tech news from. I feel like they um, have a really good set of coverage. There's a lot of experienced journalists 
uh, between The Verge and Recode, which uh, those two particular uh, uh, news sites actually are, are housed under the same roof now and are, I believe are owned by the same people. But um, great, extensive uh, uh, articles on journalism. And they did a really interesting kind of year-end retrospective from The Verge. And they did a, a report card, a 2018 report card on about 16 or 17 different uh, kind of broad uh, uh, topics. And I picked out uh, just five of them, Apple, Google, Facebook, Amazon, and Microsoft. And I encourage you, if you're interested in the notion um, of, of kind of how or where these properties are at here in, 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 in the beginning of 2019, I would encourage you to read the more detailed articles. But I thought it would be interesting for a couple minutes today, this being our first show of 2019, to jump into the Verge's coverage and see if we agree kind of broadly with their overall report card. So uh, I thought we'd start first with Apple. And according to The Verge uh, this year, for 2018, they give our friends at Apple a B. Um, and under the gold stars, they say that they're still industry-leaning when it comes to security. Uh, they also uh, give them nods for stable software and also safe or solid, if safe, product updates. And they also noted in, under the needs improvement column, hardware issues in the past year, which have, have been, I think, significant. The HomePod, which I believe we mocked when it was originally released here on the podcast. And then finally, um, the sales momentum seems to be fizzling out a little bit. So I'd start off with Wes. Do you agree with this broad assessment? And would you add anything to the plus or minus column for our friends at Apple? You know, I, I actually dropped a couple of the links that relate to this that I'll, I'll highlight, um, because Apple, in, in fact, I think just yesterday, uh, Cook announced a reduction in the, you know, billions upon billions of projected earnings for the first quarter for Apple. Um, there was a Forbes article on December 17th. They say iPhone XR sales crash increases Apple's never ending nightmare. This is, this is overblown, I think, in terms of, you know, the sky is falling. Um, the best article I actually just dropped in, I, I read last night by The Atlantic on January 2nd, says five ways to look at Apple's surprise bad news. Um, you know, Apple uh, definitely, I think, has made a shift, as we've talked about in the show before, even more to a luxury brand. And I think they're they're recalculating that. Um, one of the big things that they're talking that, that, uh, Cook talked about yesterday in the earnings projection <clears throat> was the declining economy or the slowing down economy in China and the degree to which we're, we're interconnected. Um, I think that innovation wise, you know, Apple, we've, we've seen a plateau in the capabilities of smartphones and we're seeing uh, quite a bit of parity. In fact, you know, an Apple has not been able to, to keep ahead with either, uh, cameras or, or battery. Uh, the iPhone is the number one driver as far as, you know, it's, um, uh, you know, bottom line as far as earnings and things like that. Um, but in terms of the, the classroom and, and educationally where Apple is, I think that, um, you know, innovation is the best way forward when it comes to disruption in the economy and disruption with technology. And so what we, while we did not see Apple come out with a, you know, new product that's going to revolutionize society and you can't do that every year, um, what we did see them do were solid upgrades across their product line. And I was really glad to see that. Um, I have had a chance to play extensively now with an, a new iPad Pro, uh, my first experience with Face ID. Um, it's not it's not transformational in terms of the capabilities of what you can consume and what you can create. Um, but I think Apple is in a solid place. So if it's a B, it's a B plus. And I think, you know, what we're going to continue to watch is for Apple's innovation. And the other link that I've mentioned, it's, it's actually a projection in the future. But Robert Scoble, who incredibly uh, retweeted me yesterday with the, that article about Apple's bad news, um, wrote a post on his blog. He called it iOS 2022. And it's uh, a post he wrote back in November, November the 10th. And anyway, the projection of where we're going with 5G connectivity, with the move of screens onto our glasses and being able to, you know, fully realize uh, an augmented reality vision, et cetera, Apple solid. And everybody just wants to, you know, basically lament any kind of downturn that we're going to see. So, um, I, you know, if it's a B plus, then it's it's a strong year because they haven't abandoned, you know, any of their important product lines. 
and they're continuing to innovate on that. So anyway, I don't know sure. how good of an answer that is, but I'm happy to continue being a strong and positive Apple user and excited to see how they're going to innovate in the you know weeks and months to come. Sure. And I will say that that although I think the B is a fair grade, I mean, I, to repeat something we've talked about in the past in the podcast, I feel like Apple lost me. It's it's not a case of, of uh, um, you know, I, I, I don't I believe in buying premium products and I have no problem with buying premium products. But there were uh, several instances where I um, felt like Apple could have innovated in a space to hit, to keep me going. And unfortunately, the, the large abandonment of the MacBook airline until, or MacBook airline until very recently. And the, in my mind, the absolute debacle that was the Mac Pro desktop, um, really did, uh, push me away from that, that ecosystem. And I would note there's one thing in the, that I also put under the Apple section that, that kind of, uh, annoyed me. Um, that, uh, The Verge also noted after that uh, uh, announcement about sales in the first quarter of, of, of 2019 that Tim Cook blamed, you know, that their, their cheap battery replacement program as a reason why people weren't upgrading phones. And I find that to be incredibly disingenuous because the bottom line was that that goes back to PhoneGate, right? That they were um, purposefully um, slowing down phones, they say for battery life, but I think also because uh, that they built some uh, kind of built-in uh, obsolescence into the phone to get people to upgrade more often. And, you know, the bottom line is, is that especially now we're in the era of $1,000, $1,400 phones, it's incredibly unrealistic to expect uh, end users, and I'm including power users in this, to update phones every 18 months um, after the battery starts slowing down. And if anything, I think if Apple wanted a good faith effort to keep their customers in the long term, they would make a cheaper battery replacement a part of their grand or retail strategy and, you know, allow people that want to spend three years with you, with your phone, which is not unrealistic at a thousand dollar price point to keep their phone uh, to that point in the future. I definitely think it's solid that, you know, we're just not needing and seeing the reason to upgrade. And so that churn and that upgrade cycle, which has led to such, you know, revenue expectations for Apple uh, has, is really plateaued and is, 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 uh, you know, not going to be continuing for the foreseeable future in the way that it has. So we haven't seen Apple uh, completely back off of their strategy in terms of pricing, but we did see some very aggressive discounts, you know, over the holidays in terms of um, trade-ins and things like that. And from the educational classroom school standpoint, <clears throat> your return on investment on Apple products, I think, is still going to be really, really solid. And to your point about kind of feeling like Apple lost you, you know, both on a personal level and then an institutional level, we invest in different technologies and we decide, you know, here is kind of where we're uh, literally putting putting our investment and we're going to be, you know, supporting, you know, we, we can't support everything. Uh, and, and so I feel good as a school with, with our commitment to Apple, but I do think we're going to continue to, um, you know, utilize the Google, you know, universe and the challenge presented by Chromebooks and especially the mature web and the capabilities, you know, smartphones as well as, uh, as laptops. I mean, the, the maturation and the power and the and the possibility of what you can do with quote unquote a low end device today is stunning. Right. And that's just going to continue to basically benefit us as consumers as well as, you know, folks in the enterprise, whether we're educational enterprise or, or otherwise, because it's going to be more and more difficult to say, I've got to purchase that multi thousand dollar, you know, or thousand dollar plus, let's say, you know, device right. when I can do robust things and, and a lot of folks can do everything that they need with a device that, you know, is a lot less affordable. But the return right. on investment in terms of how long that's, you know, going to last and how long the company's going to certify for that for use and all that is, is pretty right. important. So, well, and, you know, one, one last note on Apple, and we'll move on to, to Google. Um, the, Schools, you know, have used iPads into the ground, right? Like I, I, I know of a lot of schools that are starting to run into uh, iOS update issues because they have iPad twos and threes, you know, which are now um, six and seven year old technologies that they, you know, have have somehow managed to keep running for, you know, the, you know, seven years plus. 
um, that are now running into issues because the hardware itself is not all that slow, but it's not being updated to the latest operating system, which means that modern apps oftentimes don't run on that. And I, I guess Apple should know that because of, you know, working with schools for 40 plus years, they should know better in that schools are going to eke every, you know, uh, drop of juice out of those devices. And um, I would encourage them to, to continue to update uh, phones and, and iPads as long as possible. And, and to be super clear, they beat the crap out of Android on this, right? Like uh, Android's update strategy is at best uh, fragmented, at worst a complete mess. Um, and so I think that's an important piece too. So, all right. How about Google? Okay. Google um, receives a C from our good friends at The Verge. Uh, on the plus side, they killed Google Plus, which I think it's funny that they're calling that a, a win for Google, that they killed off that uh, fledgling social media system. Um, the camera on the, the Google Pixel, which is their uh, current phone, they're in the third edition of the Google Pixel phone, which is an Android phone. And they also have released a news product in the last year, the Google News app on iOS and in Android. And I would agree is an outstanding app. And then um, the needs improvement column, they cite the treatment of employees across a range of issues. Uh, they also talk about how uh, they need to, to do more public disclosure about things like their China project, which there's conflicting information in the media about if that's real or not. And then, of course, uh, a long-term uh, problem with eroding trust from both employees and customers. So I guess I'll start off with, again, Wes, do you think C is a fair grade, and where would you agree or disagree with their assessment? Oh, I'm going to give Google a B for sure. I mean, yes, I agree the stuff about employee treatment and, you know, what's what's happening in China. China is absolutely you know, kind of the pivot point of the global economy. Uh, I don't think we recognize how hugely intertwined we are and, and with what's happened, you know, politically with these, you know, threatened tariffs and actual, I guess, tariffs that are coming and trade war and all of this kind of stuff. Um, you know, I, Google took the moral high ground from my understanding in terms of it, the theft of its intellectual property and the, the ways in which it was being hacked, removing itself from China, as well as wanting to not compromise its values when it came to open, you know, access to information and this idea of filtering and things like that and the great firewall of China. Um, you know, I think, I think Google has really been trying to, um, to innovate on the hardware side, and they've learned how difficult that is, right? Like this last year, I mean, the number of leaks that we had before the Google event and the outright devices that were out there, I mean, that was really stunning. It was like, wait a minute, is this, you know, uh, I guess it shows what a culture, you know, for instance, Apple has built around uh, secrecy and confidentiality in terms of, of bringing out products, and then how challenging it is to do that on on multiple fronts, right? That's another thing to mention with Apple. I mean, the, the number of countries that products have been available immediately Immediately following a product announcement, um, you know, they, they've really worked their supply chains and, and all of that, you know, phenomenally well. So I think it's good to see Google uh, moving in those directions. The, the big issue with Google, as well as I know we're going to talk about Facebook. And then Amazon to a degree as well, uh, is this whole idea of surveillance capitalism and the basis of their model, right? Their product model. And so Apple, you know, being focused on, on hardware as well as some services and software is fundamentally in a different place than Google. Um, I don't, the report card doesn't break that out as far as income and cost and, uh, you know, profits, but that's going to be a huge difference between these companies, right? To what degree are you monetizing the data of other people and reselling that to advertisers in order to, you know, have your bottom line profitability and to what degree are you in the hardware? So I, I think, um, you know, it's Google is continuing in my mind to do the best job of the companies that are founded on surveillance capitalism being forthright and, you know, sh giving us abilities to see our, our, our history and have control over all those kind of things. Um, but I think they are going to be the receivers along with Facebook and, and Amazon and other companies of the technology correction and what we're seeing with fines and, you know, the, the backlash against privacy and things like that. Um, so I'm feeling much more positive about Google overall than I think a C grade would reflect. Um, but, you know, they've, they've struggled in, in many ways because they're so big. They're doing so many different things. But I think they're still doing things really, really well. And I think that, 
you know, again, from a from a school and an educational standpoint, I think we can feel very good about the investments that we've made, even if they're not financial, right, in the Google G Suite, you know, world. But you've put your eggs in that basket for your email, for security, for the ways that you log in and and for those kinds of things. And so I don't think a C report card really fully reflects where where I see Google at this point. I think I would definitely be boosting them into the B range or or higher. And I would also add to that, I would also agree that, that a C is, is, is a little underwhelming for them uh, in comparison to my perception of the company. I would say that a solid B is probably justified. The one addition I would add to the plus side is that in the last 12 months, I really feel like that Chrome OS has taken remarkable steps forward in becoming a professional operating system. And obviously, you know, my own experience is going to dominate my perception of this, but I can now live 100% of my time professionally and personally on a Chromebook. It helps I've purchased a high-end Chromebook um, in that I, I do carry a, a Chrome Pixel book around, which is the 2017 uh, release from Google, but it is easily the nicest laptop I've ever owned, and I, I find myself able to do 100% of all tasks I need on there, and I think that's the experience that a lot of schools are running into, that there is a perception that I think is absolutely incorrect, that Chromebooks are somehow um, uh, lesser hardware, and the operating system doesn't allow for uh, real classroom use, and I, I couldn't disagree with that more. And at some point in 2019, Wes and I will have a full show about this. Maybe this is our opportunity when we're in uh, Seattle in February February for NCCE because I, I have some Google folks that can come in and talk with us uh, as part maybe part of a panel uh, for our uh, uh, podcast then. But the bottom line is is that I think the Chrome operating system um, is really a, a, a future forward uh, uh, operating system that is, is worth your time and effort, both as a personal user and as a school. Okay, on to our friends, the Facebook, and I'm sure no one will be surprised by the fact that The Verge um, leaves uh, some strong criticism from our good friends um, at, at Facebook. They get a D this year, which I think is probably kind of a polite uh, grade in light of the situation. But on the plus side, they've increased attention to hate speech. They've added activity dashboards. They successfully managed threats to the U.S. midterm elections, although, to be clear, we didn't know about the threats to the 2016 election until well after the fact. So, obviously, we'll want to keep a, an eye on the news there. And then needing improvement, multiple data privacy scandals. Um, the Instagram founders have quit uh, Instagram, which was a tool that was purchased by Facebook for the bargain basement price of a billion dollars, which doesn't sound like a bargain basement price, but in light of what they got out of it, it was an incredible investment. And then uh, tone-deaf product launches, and I believe that they're um, referring to the uh, Messenger for Youth uh, um, uh, app they released in 2018. It was released literally in the middle of Scandal Town for Facebook. Facebook and didn't seem to acknowledge the fact that people were trusting Facebook less and not more with their data. Um, so full disclosure, um, I come from a family where my wife has now um, basically abandoned Facebook. Uh, she still has an account on Facebook and uh, she has a very unique strategy for not logging in. She only logs in via the web interface on her phone and she's given herself a 25 numerical character password that's written down in a notebook that has no mnemonics to do at all, right? So she has to, um, you know, like literally copy down the 25 characters and if she screws it up, then she has to start all over again with her 25 numbers. Um, that's been an effective strategy for her. And I think the last time she was on Facebook was at least a month ago. Um, and, um, you know, I also like I, I like Facebook. I think Facebook is an incredible tool for for connecting. And to be honest, there are probably two or three hundred people that I would not maintain an active connection with if it wasn't for Facebook. But I'm the first to acknowledge that they're that they've got to fix this. And it seems like uh, you know there's a long way to go. So, Wes, fair grade, unfair grade. Where do you think Facebook's at at the start of 2019? I agree with the grade of D for Facebook, and I, I would even move it to F. Um, I think that Facebook has not just stumbled, but out and out face planted so many different times without consequence uh, that I really look forward to the tech correction uh, bringing them down multiple notches. You know, um, we in that article about The Verge, it talks about the level of un 
per, uh, unpermission granted access. I'm saying that poorly. Um, but the level to which they allowed third party companies to have access to your private freaking messages, your direct messages and to all the stuff that users never agreed to and wouldn't. I mean, it is such a violation of trust. And, you know, we're in a tough place because there are so many people on Facebook. Um, what I would love and, and hey, shout out. I see we have a live viewer. Um, we do have a chat room if you want to check that out on the on the uh, sidebar there of our YouTube channel. If you happen to be wanting to add to this conversation, I would love to know. And I'm sure EFF will be one of the organizations involved in this. What kinds of grassroots advocacy efforts there are going to be? to really hold Facebook accountable in a consequential way, not in a way that just has politicians, you know, stand up at a, at a hearing and, you know, try and, and ask tough questions and try to, you know, uh, shine, shine the spotlight positively on them, which that hasn't worked out really well for all the, the uh, representatives in, in the U S Congress that have tried to ask our, our tech company leaders questions. But um, I just, I, I, to take this from, to an educational standpoint, um, I dropped a, a article link and I'll include this in the show notes about summit learning. Uh, this is a December 20th article from, uh, Valerie Strauss, um, why parents and students are protesting an online learning program backed by Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook. Um, that platform is called summit learning. It is a free learning pro management system that schools can buy into and sign on to. We've got a number of uh, schools here in Oklahoma that, that are part of that. And they've got, you know, kind of an ambassador program and get trained and all this. They're courting schools and, you know, Google Classroom is out there as a, as a free tool, but, but Google has been so upfront about the way they're not mining the data of miners and, and harvesting that information that I've never seen anything saying, oh, look, Google lied to us. They, they're, you know, they're really monetizing, you know, all this private information about, about miners illegally. You know, there's nothing like that. So, uh, Facebook deserves the D, probably deserves an F. Um, I have been, I don't think I'm in a place as most of us really aren't. If we want to remain connected to family and friends to just delete our Facebook entirely. Um, my wife lost her mother this, uh, you know, last week, right before uh, the Christmas holiday, actually it's at the end of a long, long journey of Alzheimer's and difficulty. Um, but you know, the outpouring of love and care that we as a family received through Facebook, the number of people who had taught with her years and years ago that we never would have been able to connect with. It was just phenomenal, right? So there are really powerful things that can happen when we are connected globally on uh, a learning platform, on a, not a an interactive platform. Um, but I think that Facebook has and should have lost the faith and trust of everyone based upon their track record. Um, I think Zuckerberg should resign. I think, you know, the, the leadership should, th this happens in other companies, right? You say, wow, this was terrible. The leadership that we have allowed this to happen. So they're out. We have a new group of leaders that are coming in and we're going to do things differently. Um, Facebook is the epitome of the surveillance capitalism company in the world today. Amazon is definitely chasing them and, and, you know, others are as well. And, and Google is a, is a part of that. But I think Facebook just gets absolute lowest marks possible for failing to um, maintain the trust of its user base. And I do not think as schools, we should place any faith at all in Facebook, in their summit learning platform, or in any other kind of platform that they're going to, to put forward because they, their track record, right, is so horrific when it comes to that. And I think student privacy and the protection of um, of our right to privacy that we have as human beings is a really important thing for us to continue to to talk about in the, in the context of digital citizenship um, and for us to work on as as adults and educators as as well as, you know, the context of, of students and how we're going to help them hopefully, you know, care about privacy and, and get that uh, carry that torch forward. So am I being a little too harsh on Facebook? Should I? No, should I you are. Forward? And, and I have a real problem with it too. Like I agree 100% with you, Wes, actually on, on, on all your points. I think that's that we should be using summit learning with a, with a big caveat. Uh, there are a couple of implementations in Montana that I've observed all of them um, at least a, at, at a short distance or close up. And I think that it's a mixed quality platform with mixed quality implementation. 
Um, I, I don't trust Facebook particularly with my data, but I'm the same as you, Wes, in that, um, you know, as a reminder or something we talked about, you know, the show start a couple years ago, Facebook is in part, uh, responsible for me receiving a live donor kidney in 2015 and literally saving my life. Like the, the four people that ended up qualifying for that and were tested for genetic matching with me, um, you know, at least two of them wouldn't even know my story if it hadn't been for Facebook. Like they knew of its broad existence, but had no idea that I had kind of crossed the line towards kidney failure. And Facebook is what kind of started that story out again and, and pulled and, and connected me with people that were willing to do that for me. So I'm convinced there's something in here somewhere. I don't know if it's the right thing to fire Mr. Zuckerberg or if it's to start over again, or if maybe a new platform needs to be developed. It's more security or privacy driven. But the bottom line is, is the trust has been violated and we have to do something about that. So I would agree. One other article that I'll do a shout out to related to Facebook. Uh, this was from the Columbia Journalism Review from one of my favorite journalists, formerly um, with um, tech. Was it? Gosh, Om, Om Malik's group. Um, Giga Ohms. Thank you. Boy, I've got to work on that. I think I need to start taking some vitamins or something, right? Is something like that going to help with my memory issues? Um, the article is called The Year in Tech, Facebook, Facebook, Facebook. And it was from December 7th. And, you know, he, again, goes through this litany of uh, of basically sins that, that Facebook committed um, to include just really significant, horrible things that have happened in other countries with you know, groups being able to weaponize the platform in spreading hate and leading to the deaths of folks and, you know, a genocide of the Rohingya in uh, Myanmar and just absolutely terrible, terrible things. So anyway, I, uh, again, think that the technology correction is needed um, and it needs to, we need to do more as individuals, I believe, than simply, you know, delete our Facebook accounts. Cause I think I heard somebody right. in the last year or yeah, the last year, the last few months talk about in, ter in terms of advocacy and student voice is we need people to recognize it's, it's not enough to really just sort of shout into the void. What we need to do is find folks who share a passion and a like-minded focus on a particular issue, support that group and then act together because group action can and will change the behavior for especially of publicly traded companies and, and folks like Facebook, you know, when there is a lot of attention paid and there's a lot of, um, of focused effort. And so anyway, that's if, if you're listening to the show and you've got any ideas about that specifically, I would really like to know just on a personal basis, you know, what are some of the most constructive ways that we can advocate for change um, with respect to Facebook and the, the ways they've broken user trust. And I hope that we'll at some point, this is network effects, right? The bigger you are, the harder it is to unseat you. We see that with Amazon in terms of online shopping. We see that with, um, with, with Google, you know, to a degree as far as, you know, email and Google apps, but Facebook for sure as a social network. We just have so many people that are invested in it. It's going to be very challenging and, and difficult for somebody to unseat them. But hopefully we will have innovation, you know, continue, which I know we will. Um, but we'll just have to kind of see how that, how that plays out because we're a very fractured environment now when it comes to all of our social interaction choices online. Uh, and Facebook's going to continue to be a major player for the foreseeable future. Regulations can certainly play a role in curtailing that power, though. Absolutely. Okay, moving on to Amazon, who receives a C from The Verge. Uh, pluses include uh, great new Echoes and Kindles. Um, their movement towards a $15 introductory wage for all workers and then their cashier free store in Seattle appears to actually work, although I have no personal information related to that. And then on the downside this year, their terrible rollout of their second headquarters, uh, news of terrible uh, uh, warehouse working conditions, um, and then some picky things, but I think pretty legitimate. The Fire TV still doesn't have uh, YouTube support, which makes it kind of a less relevant tool in 2019. And then they specifically call out the Romanovs, which was a very, very, very aggressively touted series by Amazon that I've only got through a half episode, and I agree it was it was friggin' weird. So uh, so far, I I would agree with them on that. So. Um, 
Um, I guess I'll start here and just say that CB-ish, the one thing I think uh, that would I would very much agree with with, with The Verge, and I, I am very deep in the Amazon ecosystem from the standpoint that I do a good percentage of my shopping here. It is, it, it's still the same product it was 10 years ago, fast shipping, amazing variety of products, uh, very competitive pricing. But I would agree with The Verge's assessment. It's beginning harder and harder to ignore the fact that, you know, the cheap prices and, and, and free quick shipping may come at a cost that we need to be broadly aware of. And um, one thing that that uh, it, an article that that uh, was covered a couple different times in December 2018, we haven't talked about the podcast yet, but independent bookstores had their best year in 2018 they've had in a long, long time. And I think part of that is you want to couple that under the broad technology correction we talk about. Maybe that's appropriate here, but it's, I think, not um, uh, uh, insignificant that the bread and butter of Amazon, where they started, which was an online bookstore, has been um, you know, largely you know, challenged by the old school independent bookstore in communities across the United States. And so probably fair to criticize. And I think there's probably some soul searching we need to do in regards to Amazon. What do you think, Wes? So this whole idea of a grade is pretty interesting, right? If uh, if I look at that as an individual consumer, uh, if I look at that as through my tech director lens at school, or if we think, I guess, more broadly in terms of their impact on society and societal values, I mean, I'm going to give Amazon an A plus from a tech director standpoint. Uh, you know, we have about 900 students, 170 full-time and part-time faculty staff. We've got two full-time folks that are supporting all of those people, along with others that are on our technology team. But uh, it's a very aggressive situation in terms of support and man being able to order not everything but a lot of stuff that we need with Amazon have it there the next day you know I I, I know school districts in our local area that their business office at least a couple years ago <clears throat> wasn't permitting any purchases from Amazon I mean blow my mind I there's just no way I could survive I don't think and be as um, hopefully effective as we are without Amazon and with the shipping that being said it does come at a cost and an article that I uh, put in a little bit lower on the show notes, um, this was from Time Magazine on December 17th. Amazon is paying people $20 an hour to deliver packages using their own cars, and the competition is cutthroat. And so while The Verge does highlight you know, that idea of the $15 introductory wage, Amazon and other companies are very much supporting what people have termed the gig economy. I think I'm saying that right, um, which is this ability to you know, outsource things and pay some really you know, low, low wages for you know, different kinds of services. A friend of mine um, actually went to work for Amazon, I think, a few months ago, and I think there were like 300 different trucks that he was helping supervise, and these were the official Amazon trucks doing the delivery, but like a Lyft uh, or a ride-sharing service like Lyft or Uber, you know, they have a service where you can just sign up, and uh, you're, you know, you've got these deliveries to do, um, but you're not paid on an hourly basis. You're paid sort of for that quota of deliveries, and it's up to you to do that. So anyway, it's just pretty interesting. I don't see this as nefarious or nefarious, I guess. Say that right, um, but you know there's 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 big big changes that are being wrought in our society and economy by the fact that we have 4G LTE high speed internet with the advent of 5G, which again read that Robert Scoble article talking about just you know what is that going to mean when I get 25 gigs down on my phone right that's going to happen within a, a couple years uh, folks are saying um, Amazon is a major catalyst in bringing about the gig economy and some substantial changes all of which are certainly not beneficial to us from a society level in terms of, you know, just kind of like the Walmart effect, um, how many local bookstores are there, you know, how many folks were shortchanged the opportunity to do business for, for Christmas sales because, you know, we did so much of our shopping online. And we certainly, you know, did that. I did that a lot um, as, as a shopper. But I think Amazon um, has, has avoided a lot of the controversies that Facebook and um, other, you know, companies have done. They're, they're definitely interested in, in tracking us and that whole opaque cloud of information and data that is out there about us, uh, the mysterious ways in which, you know, did you just say this product and then suddenly you saw that on your Instagram feed or, you know, how is it that these things, you know, get connected? Uh, Amazon is 
part and parcel, a huge part of that ecosystem. And so they may not be facing the criticism in the halls of Congress for that, um, but they're definitely a part of that. And again, with network effects, they're not going to be unseated in that role. But from a school standpoint, I see them as a huge, huge positive, and I can't imagine living without them. Absolutely. And, and I would agree totally with, with the assessment, especially for schools. So, and last and certainly not least, and I'm sorry this is taking so much time of, of our episode today, but I think this is a good, good retrospect on, on the year. Uh, Microsoft is given a B by the verge. Uh, the pluses are difficult bets are starting to pay off and they're referring mostly to hardware bets that Microsoft has made over the last uh, five years in an attempt to become a, a kind of a, a full, uh, stack, uh, uh, manufacturer of hardware and software that's designed to work well together. Um, Edge moving to Chromium, which is the base of the Edge browser, uh, in upcoming versions. And then they have, uh, some interesting hardware releases, including the Xbox adaptive controller. And then the needs improvement list, uh, Windows 10 had a pretty terrible buggy year. The Surface USB-C support is still lacking. And then Cortana has kind of disappeared from, um, uh, uh, kind of the mainstream of, of Microsoft lore. So, um, in the same way that, that you've become kind of the defender of, of Apple on our podcast, West, I feel like I'm in the weird position of being the defender of Microsoft, even though I'm like, I'm, I'm a leery Microsoft fan at this point, right? Um, like I, I was kind of lured back by Windows 10, which I think is a very solid operating system, but I have to say that a B, B minus grade would be fair in light of the fact that I do think they're finally figuring out hardware. Um, I do use a, a Surface uh, laptop at work or a Surface Book at work, I guess, with the first generation of Surface Book, and it's been a really nice piece of hardware to work with. Um, I've also uh, taken some older uh, PCs and converted them to Windows 10, and they've been solid performers, but the updates bit me like they bit everyone else in 2018, and just when I felt like that Microsoft had kind of caught up with Apple in regards to you know evolving their operating system on a regular basis, um, you know, the, the terrible updates that Situation happened, which you know diminished my trust in in staying kind of the cutting edge of, of Microsoft updates. And I know Wes, as you as a tech director, I'm sure faced those issues in 2018 as well. I would give Microsoft an A if it wasn't for the issues with the Windows 10 updates, which frankly have been the biggest technical challenge I've faced in in three and a half years as a technology director. Finally, right before school got out, I was able to you know. Fit, get resolved that there was a needed BIOS update that we had to do in these um, all-in-one Dells that without that, mysteriously, the Windows update somehow bricks the display. And anyway, we have to remove RAM or the CMOS battery. It's just, it's the craziest thing that I've ever seen. Uh, but I, but I am really positive on Microsoft, which you know, there's lightning that's going to strike me. Uh, the way in which they are embracing multiple platforms, they're fully on with Microsoft Office on whatever device you have. It's not like if you have a Mac, you're going to get a crummy version that we're not going to fully, you know, really invest in. I mean, Microsoft has genuinely uh, changed you know, their, their heartbeat, I think, when it comes to, uh, innovation and the way in which they want to play in the cloud and they want to play on multiple devices and the ways in which they want to innovate. So like Google, they're struggling with hardware, right? And that's something to respect about Apple. I mean, it is really, really hard to create fantastic hardware that seamlessly works with the software and then to pull that yeah. off, especially when you've got an ecosystem of devices that span so many years and so many different devices. So, um, I am very positive overall on Microsoft, but I will say that that misstep that's highlighted in the Verge article on Windows 10 is absolutely huge, and they certainly need to get that figured out because what they need is folks to be confident, right? And like you said, I am no longer confident being on the cutting edge of Windows 10 updates. In fact, I'm not going to try and do that at all at school during the year. I mean, once we get these you know machines um, stabilized, which literally I got to go up during vacation, which ice today, so it's probably... It might be later tonight. We'll see. But I need to get those uh, those machines all, you know, online and functioning for the next semester. Uh, and we're going to probably just leave them frozen with deep freeze. We're not going to, to try and mess with them because there was so much volatility um, with the upgrades this last year. 
Yep, sounds great. Okay, well, that ends that. I would encourage you, if you want uh, kind of other coverage uh, from The Verge, the report card articles were, were really quite outstanding, and they cover other topics like the state of uh, headphones, which I think is an interesting topic for personal users. Uh, they take a look at Nintendo, Uber, Samsung, AR and VR, uh, Twitter, uh, SpaceX, Snap, the, the app, and all sorts of interesting stuff. And so if you're interested in that, I would certainly recommend you check out the year-end coverage from our friends the Verge. So now that I've sucked up, you know, a good 60% of our podcast time, Wes, where would you like to take us for our second topic? Of the, well, the- that, was, that was actually a great way to frame frame um, the conversation here. And like you said, in our first show of the new year, um, I'd like to highlight a great media literacy article. This was from New York, New Yorker magazine. It's actually called the well, NewYorkMag.com. I guess their byline is intelligent, intelligencer. Um, but the article from December 26th, how much of the internet is fake? Turns out a lot of it actually by Max Reed. Uh, this reminds me of early days of blogging with something called a cluster map and the excitement that I would have seeing the dots on the cluster map. Wow. Look at all these people who are apparently reading my stuff. And finally, you know, realizing that, wow, there's a lot of bots out there. Everything that's pulling up an IP address, like why are all these folks in Russia, you know, possibly pulling up my website? Um, and so this article goes through what is fake. And the first thing is metrics, right? The basis on which a lot of web marketing happens and a lot of advertising dollars, frankly, flow um, are based on on metrics that in many cases are fake. Um, it says, uh in October, small advertisers filed suit against Facebook, accusing it of covering up for a year its significant overstatements of the time users spent watching videos on the platform by 60 to 8 percent, Facebook says, by 150 to 900 percent, the plaintiffs say. Um, and so anyway, we, can we trust the metrics? Basically, no, we, we can't. Uh, it goes on to talk about how the people are fake in terms of click farms and, you know, uh, we think about elections and, and what, you know, has happened there with, with bots, businesses being fake, content being fake, um, politics being fake. We ourselves are fake. Anyway, it's a great article. And I think it's an important part of media literacy today um, to recognize the roles that bots and automation is playing in the social media landscape, the ways in which headlines and attention is driven. Um, one of the most important challenges I would say we have moving into 2019. Well, that is weird. Sorry about <laughs> is, that. I uh, clicked is, on the video on that article. I was going to say is how to prevent, you know, Chinese hackers from getting into our Google Hangout, inserting their <laughs> own. No, sorry. Um, no, it's this idea of how we're going to have discourse and we're going to transcend the highly polarized political environment and even just information environment that we're we're living in today. Um, and a lot of that is now, frankly, driven by bots and algorithms and folks that are, you know, using their coding skills for evil and not for good. I would say, you know, when it comes to trying to to, to really skew results, certainly in, in foreign elections and things, things like that. So um, have, have you uh, lost any faith in the validity of Internet content in 2018, Jason? Um, I'm not, but part of it is that I am, I do feel like I'm, I'm extremely leery about what content I utilize. And I, and part of this goes back to, I used to a long time ago, um, uh, I guess for lack of a better way of putting it, I would, uh, say that one of the advantages I had as a debate researcher was that I learned about research before there was the internet. And then by the time the internet came around, I had good old school research skills, um, which, uh, actually turn out extremely, or turn out to be extremely valuable in, 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 in the modern day era, right? Well, as it turns out, I think the same is true about evaluating even entertainment media. And I think I've mentioned a, a couple of times here that there are, you know, five or six, actually probably closer to 15 or 20 now YouTube channels. And I'm pretty regularly engaging in because I like the content there. But, you know, with the exception of one or two of them that are big, high click aimed at youth channels that um, I do think have an element of not quite fake to it, but certainly is a little more glossy than it appears. Um, it is people that are, you know, engaging in good, solid community building um, at, you know, they're not getting hundreds of thousands of viewers. They have 15,000 subscribers, 10,000 subscribers. And I think I've mentioned on the channel that uh, one of my partners at Cry, Mike Gustinelli, who um, uh, I work with the Digital Academy, and I also do a lot of PD with, his mom is on YouTube, and she has a crafting channel that now has 15,000 
100,000 viewers, and she has legitimate connections with hundreds, if not thousands of viewers that are pretty regularly engaging in her channel, and she's got legit, um, you know, engagement with, with her community. And so the part that, that I think we're going to have to talk about and come to some, you know, realistic solutions to is how do we deal with the fakeness of the internet and the fakeness of Instagram and the fakeness of, you know, so fake in some cases that people are pretending to have sponsors as to encourage other people to sponsor their Instagram feeds. We talked about that article last week on the podcast. How can we separate those out without taking away this enormously interesting and easy way to get a global audience using just your laptop and a broadband connection. And I don't know the answer to that yet. I mean, you're talking to a couple of guys that have spent most of their career trying to help students find voice using the internet. And some of them have done extraordinary things with that. I don't want to lose that. But obviously, I have a massive disinterest in, you know, content being replaced largely by things that are there just to sell me advertising based elements um, and and fake culture, which I think is, is a real problem. Well, identifying trusted voices is an essential media literacy and digital literacy skill today, right? Being able to identify, you know, who is credible, what their source is, and that even extends to the things that we share, right? Because we are, and, and certainly I think can fairly be judged by the kinds of content that we amplify and, and we choose to repost and things like that. So, uh, that's definitely something to work on. Um, we are going to have a, a hard stop at the top of the hour. And I, I think I'm, I'm just going to tell folks, look, you've got to see what China just did last night, right? They did a, a, uh, soft landing on the far side of the moon. Never been, never been done before. Um, but I think I'm going to leave some of that space geek stuff, uh, maybe for, for, for next show. Um, what I'd like to talk just a little bit about is, is equally exciting, but on a completely different level. And it has to do with the public domain and copyright. And so um, Ars Technica had a New Year's January 1st article, Mickey Mouse and Batman will soon be public domain. Here's what that means. Um, as a result of comments in that article, I found John Mark Ockerbloom's December 14th post called Public Domain Day Advent Calendar Number 14, Tarzan and the Golden Lion by Edgar Rice Burroughs. <clears throat> and then Motherboard yesterday um, has a, a great article called How to Download the Books that Just Entered the Public Domain. And so if you're not familiar, um, we had a law called the Sonny Bono Law, I think was what the nickname yeah. of it was, um, that basically prevented a huge number of creative works from passing into the public domain. And that first Ars Technica article, um, I think is really heartening because it says basically the RAIA, the recording industry, you know, book publishers, these different media powerhouses, um, recognize that there's a strong constituency now who would really fight them and they would probably lose if they tried to extend the same kinds of copyright protection uh, to a variety of different works. And so they just, just decided not to fight it. And that's meant that literally thousands of different works from 1923 have passed now into the public domain and we're going to continue to see this happen. This is the first time it's happened in 21 years, uh, you know, because of that congressional action. And so this is really really a positive story about internet activism, the importance again of working together in groups with people who have shared passions. Um, and then that motherboard article is uh, a fantastic one because it gives you a lot of places where you can go uh, get these works. And so there's a, a, some different groups that are working now to digitize these. Some of these have been digitized. Some, some I've heard of before and some I haven't. Readprint.com, the literature network, uh, LibriVox, which um, has audiobooks that I've, um, you know, utilized them before. Um, Authorama, um, has everything that's in the public domain. So a great opportunity in 2019 to talk about intellectual property, to talk about copyright, talk about, you know, what we can do with different kinds of works. And when something's passed into the public domain, what does that mean? Um, one of the interesting things here, I think it's going to, I don't think Steamboat Willie passed this year. I think he's going to come next year, but trademark law is in with this. And again, we have a real need, I think, to, have clearer understandings of copyright and intellectual property in schools and to empower students to um, take advantage of fair use rights that, that they have and we have, um, but also, um, you know, really celebrate this idea that, you know, works that are outside of copyright that are in the public domain become digitally malleable in ways right. that you cannot 
manipulate today because of digital rights management. And I was talking to my wife about this yesterday with respect to reading and the ways in which it would be great to interact around the text and, and you know, manipulate and change things. And so there's Amazon and Kindle and, and that kind of network effects dominance in the ebook market. Um, I would love to learn more about companies that are allowing, especially for works that are in the public domain, to really have robust interactivity around the text and around those kinds of ideas. Not just to see sort of the highlighted text of everybody, like you can see on Amazon, but to have a class of students and then being able to have conversations together around the text and using, you know, a digital platform on a tablet or, you know, just on, you know, through via a web browser or an app to be able to, to do that. So Jason, have you and are you going to fill your device with public domain audiobooks immediately following today's show? Um, I, well, I've already actually started. So these articles have been a, uh, well, I, I knew this was coming and there's been a lot of excitement in the library world because, um, in some cases, these are very popular works that are coming um, out of copyright protection in this year and next year and the year after. And in a lot of cases, this will save, uh, I think, The Great Gatsby's up in two or three years, if I remember correctly. And that's an example of a book that I'm fairly sure um, is, is schools are actively spending money on, right, to provide uh, access to to that, th- those amazing great works of literature. And i got to say, as much as I appreciate generally copyright, I think it's an important part about you know, creating value uh, for creatives, right? I think that's an important piece here. I do think, you know, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years after the copyright is, is uh, the copyright has been providing profit, that it's time to, you know, put that, I think, in the public domain. So I'm very excited about it. Um, and as a historian, there's uh, an extraordinary number of history books that were written uh, pre-1920 uh, uh, that have, um, you know, extraordinary uh, works of art in them, um, uh, woodcut drawings and maps and things that, you know, you there's obviously a, a an educational use of, of any work to use a map in a classroom, et cetera. But if you're being mindful of copyright, use, utilizing those as great resources. Um, I know that all the people that put out things like public domain clip art and public domain images will take maps like that and make them largely available to the masses and they can easily reproduce them without fears of copyright issues. Absolutely. Uh, one other article I want to pick up real quick, uh, and then we probably need to do some Geeks of the Week. Uh, this is just kind of mind-blowing. This is the New York Times on December 21st. Guitarist has brain surgery and strums all the way through. Um, you know, we are still, there was a National Geographic a year or so ago that was, you know, focused on the brain and just, you know, at kind of, if you think about a satellite, uh, analogy, it, it's like we're, we're still seeing just big cloud movements. We're not, you know, z- z- being able to zoom into the, you know, close earth level to read license plates and things like that with respect to the brain, um, at least that's the perception I get from reading articles about this from folks who know a lot more about it. Um, this is a, a fascinating story about how, you know, the brain, um, you know, is, is so plastic and has so many different connections. And so uh, the gentleman who, um, I guess, Carlos Aguilera, uh, no, that, that was somebody else who was having, he was a saxophonist who was having a similar operation. Different people who've been musicians have had this kind of a surgery. Um, and so there's some precedent for this, but, um, wow, the brain is just, it's an incredible thing, right? And as much as we know about science today and we know about, you know, the, the, the universe and the solar system and we have countries landing, well, robots and rovers on the far side of the moon this week. Um, there's really so much more uh, to, to learn and understand about the brain. And again, biotech and the merging of uh, technology with biology is a hugely important area of study and, and growth that we're going to continue to see. Um, and this is just you know, kind of kind of an amazing story. So I wanted to throw that one out. Any other articles that you would like us to catch before we do some Geeks of the Week and wrap this this show up today? Um, no, I think I'm good. We did, I think, a great retrospective, and I am looking forward to, you know, obviously, uh, CSS, um, CSS, C, 
CES is is upcoming uh, in Las Vegas. Uh, almost all tech journalists um, have been preparing for that. The, everyone assumes it would be maybe more of a muted CES this year, if for no other reason than I think this kind of boom and bust of, of potential devices that CES has been known for um, will uh, definitely uh, maybe be scaled back just a little bit. But I'm looking forward to new hardware in upcoming months and looking at what 2019 will bring us as we start to figure out you know, how does this technology best fit in our lives educationally and otherwise. Absolutely. Well, on that note, what do you have for us this week for your Geek of the Week? as part of their uh, uh, stocking stuffers or under the tree gifts this year. And I just want to point out a great article that talks about something you may not know about your Kindle in that obviously it's a kind of a delivery device for Amazon content. And so the Kindle store is available and there's extraordinary numbers of, of, of relatively inexpensive books and sources to find uh, discounts and deals on books. But um, if you are new to the Kindle architecture and you don't know about things like OverDrive and ways that your public library can provide uh, content for you for free and also that you can take longer, long-form articles on the Internet and uh, send them to your Kindle via a series of services. There's a great article in the show notes this week that talks about five things you can do with your Kindle beyond just buy things in the Amazon store. All right. Awesome. That is fantastic. And my Geek of the Week is a little open source DVD burning software program for Mac OS. It is called Burn. You can find it at burn-osx.sourceforge.net. Um, I've actually needed to create some slideshows for a few funerals. I think I did three this last year. Um, and so uh, that is a a wonderful thing to be able to do for people, but now that iDVD is not bundled with your Mac, uh, you know, how am I going to create this DVD in order to, you know, create the slideshow? Um, actually, part of the story is that, you know, through working with funeral homes, I've learned the value of that old technology, the DVD, right? I mean, I'm used to using flash drives and, and things like that, but it's uh, kind of nice just to have, hey, here's this DVD, put it in, play it, it works. Uh, so that is a application that I've used to just create a very simple, um, you know, D DVD. And one of the things that's nice is DVDs. One of the things you got to know is, are we PAL or NTSC? And here in the North America, we are, uh, that's not NTS NTSC, I think, is our format for our video. Europe is on the PAL format. You just drop whatever video that you've got in whatever kind of QuickTime MPEG format, and it goes ahead and converts it over to the MPEG format that's needed for the DVD burning and makes it and puts the menu on it and makes it nice and easy. So those are our Geeks of the Week. Those are some highlights from the tech news. Jason, when you're not giving up your lunch break at work to talk on the EdTech Situation Room, where can people find you? I'm on Twitter at TechSavvyTeach. I also work with the Northwest Council for Computer Education to provide professional development and interesting technology things. You can find them on Twitter at NCC underscore EdTech. And then as a reminder, there's just a couple weeks left of early bird pricing for the Seattle NCC conference at the end of February, um, ncc.org. And you can go to the conference page and find out more. A um, lot of excitement. Uh, Gary Brooks will be our, I'm sorry, Jerry Brooks will be our keynote speaker this year. Very popular. Uh, education speaker nationally. And of course, you can come hang out with me and Wes. So I mean, what more do you need? That's right. Well, I am W. Fryer on Twitter. My blog, speedofcreativity.org, will, I think, be receiving more posts in the coming year. That's one of my resolutions for 2019. We want to thank you for tuning in. Please remember to check out our show notes at edtechsr.com slash links. You can follow us on Twitter at edtechsr and generally on Wednesday nights when Wes is not forgetting himself and, you know, just losing his mind. Uh, we're here on um, the uh, YouTube channel, edtechsr, and you can find us generally at at 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain Time. So until next time, have a great week. Stay savvy and stay safe. And please share the EdTech Situation Room with other folks that you know. Take care.